back to Running Into the Fog with the Joe Bros, and our guest today is Ronnie Weston. Hi, Ronnie. How are you? Hello, Eric. How are you? I am fantastic, and I'm with my kid brother, so how else could I be? Hey, Derek, how's your day going? Uh, doing really good. Happy to be with you both. Ronnie, thanks for uh, joining us on the podcast. And Derek, thanks so much for the offer to be on it. We are gathered here about six months before this goes live, or a little less. Uh, this should be live on March 1st. And there's my dogs right on cue. The propane guy is now leaving. So sorry for that. Derek, why don't you give the details? Okay? Yeah, we'll be. Do you want to try to re-record that? Just to get that at no? Okay. Are you sure? Especially now that I've... Nope. Right. Authenticity. We'll, we'll cut some out. Um, it threw me off my game a little bit, Ronnie. You know, the uh, the dogs barking should not be a new thing. I think between the three of us, we have like eight dogs or something. So um, that is a little bit of fog that we haven't encountered before. We're on running into the fog. So, uh, you know, we're still figuring this out as we fly the airplane, so to speak. Ronnie, we go way back. So uh, when I say way back, your husband is a dear friend and mentor uh, to me. You've been a dear friend and mentor to me, but uh, Evan, and I worked together before I joined Eric in this company, Aurora WDC, and we worked together at a place called Northern Capital in the investment space. And uh, Evan came into my life at a time when uh, our father had passed away, you know, back in the late 90s. It wasn't that I was looking necessarily to replace uh, him, uh, but Evan stepped uh, very squarely into, uh, hey, Derek, uh, you need to you need to consider doing this, that, and the other. And he still does that for me. And I, I appreciate that greatly. Um, we've had an opportunity to exchange business ideas and thoughts and kind of, uh, you know, the thinking around, you know, setups of really good structures to businesses and different things over the years. And I look forward to kind of getting into that with you. But for our listeners at home, Ronnie, give a little bit of background. Obviously, I know that you're a a well-educated lawyer by trade. You've done a lot of different things in your entrepreneurial career, but can you do a little bit of that background for our listeners today? Absolutely, guys. Uh, first of all, Derek, I knew you when when there was only one child in your life. Uh, and so you've, you've come a long way and you've come a long way business-wise. And I, I love watching the two of you build your business. Uh, and yes, Evan is a bit of a father figure. Uh, he, he loves that role, uh, but he's just a great friend and mentor. And he is my partner in life and partner in crime. So um, thanks for, for mentioning him. Yeah, my background's pretty varied, so we're not going to spend the entire uh, 45 minutes on this, but I'll give you you and the listeners a bit of a synopsis. Um, and I, when I do trainings, which we can touch on at times, I ask people to tell us about their last name and their background. And what's important for your listeners to know is that everything I do today, I think is a result of my background. I am first generation American. Uh, I was born to Kurt and Sylvia Layton, who escaped from Vienna during the Holocaust. Fortunately, they did not have to go to concentration camps, but they had about a nine month journey to get to the United States. When they got to the United States, they had to learn a new language, obviously. They had to fit in. Uh, they had to find their way in, in life and in their professional careers. And they knew that at the time, things were still pretty tense in the United States. So they said, we better change our uh, Jewish 
Viennese name from Lemberger, not the stinky cheese Lemberger, but Lemberger, to something where people don't pick us out as Jews. And they told me that story many times, and they opened a phone book in the white pages, and they went to the L's, and the first name they saw was Leighton. So my married name is Ronnie Weston. I still think of myself as Ronnie Leighton. I think of myself as the daughter of immigrants, which frames a lot of the work that I do today. I think of myself um, in part two of my life, which is where I am now, of trying to make the world a better place. And I know I've shared these words with you, Derek. Uh, Eric, you're probably hearing them for the first time, but there's a, a Hebrew expression or words that is called tikkun olam, and it means to repair the world. So I think sort of unofficially as an attorney, I I was trying to do that, but I was never in the do-good aspects of being a lawyer. I was more in the deal-making um, world, but I think that stood me in good stead. Uh, I've owned a retail store. I've uh, done a nutritional, uh, nutritional supplement business. I am a bit of a writer. I've uh, ghost wrote a couple of books, collaborated on one. Um, but my my place in life now is being the grandmother of ten. Uh, we have a blended family of five, uh, the the dog mom of three, um, and um, a wife and uh, mom to to our five kids. That's an awesome background. I know you uh, <laughs> keep your keep your husband well. Uh, well in line. And uh, when Evan listens to this, he'll know exactly what I mean when I say that. <laughs> it's good. a tough job, but somebody has to do it. Somebody yeah. has to do it. So uh, you, know, you live up in the Harpswell, Maine area, you know, so far northeast, but you, you've got Florida roots and the, the background that you share around you know, what inspires you, and what drives you, uh, you know, the to repair the world concept, I know, uh, also leads you to get involved in different things from a, a fundraising point of view, and uh, helping uh, nonprofits navigate the financial uncertainties that they confront and have to cope with is a topic I, I kind of want to go pretty deep into today and how you work with executive leaders in a nonprofit world to see that they can repair the world and doing it by this, but they need capital, you know, capital fundraising in order to get from point A to point B to point point Z, right? And I think that that would be a pretty awesome place for us to linger for a while here in the podcast today. Eric, do you have any questions uh, as we get kind of into that uh, for Ronnie about her background or that that theme? Well, I just wanted to say how nice it is to meet you, Ronnie, and I've heard a lot about you, and the dogs have died down in the background, but I don't think they're done yet. So I think that's a perfect question, Derek, to take us forward, and I'm going to go mute again so that we don't get interrupted. Sure. So the uh, when, you, when you're looking at a new uh, partner, uh, client partner, I'll, I'll call them, uh, for applying your wisdom from a capital campaign, capital fundraising point of view, Ronnie, what types of things are you looking for, you know, in way of those executive directors that you interact with? Um, you know, what type of causes are you typically attracted to? Some of those things, because uh, I think they're 
there's lessons for the for-profit world to be had in that from a from a financial point of view. And you know, financial challenges can, let's be honest, create some real fog, you know, in the true spirit of this podcast. Create some real fog that's tough to navigate. Well, this is a big topic, and this is great because I don't get to talk about it generally other than the one-on-one client relationship. Um, let's start with the premise of, of what we do at Bull Moose Group. That's our consulting firm. When I decided to go into nonprofit fundraising, and now I would say more organizational development, including fundraising, we wanted to find our niche, as you would in a for-profit business. And our niche was the small to medium-sized nonprofit, budgets generally under a million dollars, those that struggle to get their word out, struggle to have a board that understands how important it is to ensure the financial resources. Uh, So that was our niche size. The niche of our work seems to, in keeping with we want to repair the world, causes of organizations where they're serving immigrant and refugees, uh, youth education groups, a little bit of the arts, uh, homeless, uh, food insecurity, uh, a new one, gun safety, um, mental health, those kinds of things where we feel drawn. It's not that the larger environmental organizations or the American Cancer Societies, all of those things are not important. Obviously, they are. There's a place in all of that. But for us, we feel like we can make the biggest difference both in the small to medium size and the areas of uh, social justice that, that I've identified. So that's what we do. Now, what happens, guys, is that, that's a very New York expression, by the way, guys. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's all right. You're, you're talking to a couple of, we call ourselves Hanyaks from Wisconsin. <laughs> so uh, we joke about that regularly on the podcast. Carry on. Good. Um, so what happens is, and it happens weekly, I'll get a call or an email now more regularly. We need your help in raising money for our organization. And I'm sure you both having served on boards is exactly, you've been in that position. And after 15 plus years in the business, I know, I know that question. I know what they need, but they don't know what they need. They don't just need capital. They need to know that their organization is worthy of an investment by a donor. This is not just writing a check that says, oh, I'm giving to charity. You know, your children will be better off when I do this. This is about, if I take you as the donor, Derek, that you're making an investment in an organization and they're gonna steward that money well. So I'm starting to bring up the things that we begin to look at. So I say to the potential client, I'm all about trying to help you raise money. But before we ever raise a dollar, all the I's have to be dotted. All the T's have to be crossed. You have to have an excellence governance model. You have to have 
great marketing materials. You have to have a, a exciting website. You need to have a board that understands its role in the fundraising process. And yes, UED, who's generally the one who reaches out, you're going to have to spend 50% or more of your time in doing, for example, a capital campaign. So right away, we're going to need to look at who's your other staff, how are you going to begin to manage your time, and is everyone committed to this concept? So I'm going to stop there for a second and let you ask me what what else you want to ask about the process. Eric, that was that was awesome uh, to hear how you onboard a new prospective client because mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're separating sheep and goats there a little bit. You know, you're <laughs> you're helping them deselect from your prospect pr process so that if people are not willing to commit to that understanding and that allocation of resources and attention span and you know existing capital and and, and momentum, then they're not for you you probably can't help them. They're probably, I, I, I prefer the term willfully helpless um, <laughs> because they're, they're, they may not want to take your experience uh, and benefit from it in the way you're able to benefit them. And so I, I love that. I love that expectation setting at the very outset because it gets everybody sort of on the same footing and, and understanding how, how what it's going to take because that's really, that's your message is you got to, commit to this. This isn't a, I'm going to work the phones for you and raise you a million dollars. So you guys have a lifeline to the future. This is, I'm going to help you with a business model that is going to be sustainable when I'm gone. You, you are absolutely right. I'm going to take it to one other level. And, and that is um, the training is critical. Not only are we going to potentially weed a client out, but they need to know if we take them on, number one, our reputation is on the line. If we say you, you can raise $2 million, by gosh, you're going to raise it. At the same time, their reputation is on the line. The worst thing they can do is entertain a capital campaign and fail. And so we take that weeding out process, assume that we've not weeded them out in the very beginning. And we, we do do some, for sure, uh, much more selective than we used to be. But let's say we do take them on. Then we begin the assessment process. And I, I don't know if this is exciting to your listeners or not. Obviously, I get juiced by it. But we do an internal assessment, kind of an audit. Uh, I am far from an accountant, but that's when we look at everything internally, staffing, marketing, uh, governance. And then we go out and test their premise externally, uh, typically known in the biz as the feasibility study, where we say community people, people that you think could uh, eventually invest in you, do you think they can raise $2 million? Do you think the case for support that they've put in front of you is a good one? How would you improve it? Would you be willing to work on the campaign? Would you be willing to donate to it? So. When we come out of that process, which is about a, uh, call it a 90 to 120 day process, they will have a good feel for either not in heck, can you move forward with this? You should not. The best case scenario is all systems go. 
99% of the case, nobody's going to have that, you know, all systems go. The middle ground is, yeah, you've got a really great idea here. You've got a really good organization. Here are your weak points. And let's go ahead and fill those gaps in the campaign readiness. And then you can go raise money. So everything you've heard is has nothing to do with raising money at this at this very juncture. But it has so, to do with fitness for purpose, as we like to say, and that you're getting them ready to be investment grade. They're not yet investment grade until you've had your way with them and polished <laughs> them up a little bit. Can, can I use can I use those words fitness for purpose? <laughs> I love that. Please do. <laughs> so, what are some of those gaps that you often find, Ronnie? You know, when you're when you're thinking about those gaps, and then how you get the the executive director and his or her staff on board to fill those gaps before you hit the all systems go button. Work us through uh, what that process looks like. So the biggest gap has rarely to do with staffing. The biggest gap and the ones that should be most interesting to your listeners is because I'm sure many of them serve on boards, have served on boards. The biggest gap is nobody wants to ask for money. When you sign on to a board, you think, okay, well, I, I love the mission of helping children. Nobody told me I was going to have to raise money to make that mission work. So nine times out of 10, it's the board's lack of understanding, not so much their lack of willingness, but they need training, they need coaching. And um, that is the area that we love working on the best. So we do a training called fundraising as a team sport, and it's divided into various sessions. We've gotten fairly good at being on Zoom with it. Not ideal, but, you know, we make we make do. And uh, I teach, uh, okay, the more people on a team, the more successful you're going to be. Being a huge football fan, go Bucks. Um, and as you know, Evan's a huge Packers fan, but the more people on the team, the more successful you're going to be. Well, if you're going to be on the team, guys, why do you need to be on the team? Well, as board members, you need to be on the team because one of your roles as a board member, according to all the gold standards of governance, is to ensure the financial resources. And part of that is fundraising. Well, if I have to be on the team, how do I play well? And so we teach them that not all fundraising is about making an ask. And all of a sudden, you feel like in the room, people are going, oh, phew. Until I say, but somebody's got to make an ask, right? So there's all sorts of ways to participate in the fundraising process, including the most gratifying, which is to thank people for donating. If you were a board member and the only thing I asked you was to make a phone call to say, thanks so much for your donation. Let me tell you how that worked. It's a piece of cake, right? So that's one of the ways you play well. And then we talk about the psychology of fundraising. And this is the cool part. Like, why are people so reluctant to ask for money? What do you think? Turning this, I'm turning this around. They're, this they're around. afraid of being told no? Well, ahead, they're Eric. afraid of finding out that the work that they're doing isn't valued. 
Well, that's really interesting. Hopefully they that's not the message they got from the person. The person probably made a financial decision to just say, no, I don't have the money. Or, But re- fear of rejection, Derek, is exactly what's happening. So very similar in sales. That phone feels like a thousand pounds and you don't pick it up to make that sale. Very similar in fundraising. So we go through how, how does that feel to you? You know, talking about money in with a nonprofit, it, it feels like one of those taboo subjects. But we we I try to get them over that. And then the next piece of the psychology is why do people give? Why have you done your charitable work? Hmm. It's a complicated question. I some of my contributions are strictly anonymous and I I just want to help someone who I see in need and my own you know faith tradition suggests mm-hmm. that because I've noticed them I am now recruited uh, into assisting in other cases I want to be part of something I want to be a named advocate um, and in fact we've got a lot few of those programs going on right now around professionals of color and how to be a better neighbor and a whole bunch of other stuff that you know extends from that but sometimes I just want to support them anonymously I don't want to have attribution yeah, for sure. And we should take this show on the road because you, you, you're you giving me all the right cues in my training. What about you, Derek? You've certainly done both sides, given money, raised money. Obviously, it's easier if there's a, some type of personal connection. So uh, you know, I got deeply involved in a fundraiser that involved a high school teammate of mine. Over the course of about 15 years, we raised some substantial amount of money, you know, in the not to the degrees you you were talking about a few minutes ago, but you know, we raised uh, half a million dollars over the course of 15 years for uh, essentially spinal cord injury research here at a local uh, research lab on UW-Madison's campus. But the, the motivation for that particular passion for me was, hey, I was able to, none of the money went to him, but it was, it was uh, directly inspiring him to see that something that was near and dear to his heart was um, being worked on. And, you know, I think that that probably in your world, Ronnie, you, you have opportunity to create passion around these use cases and let people say, you know, I wish I wish I'd have had that uh, youth center. You know, I know uh, Tree Street Youth, and maybe we can go into that one as an example. You know, is uh, youth centers are a, are a scenario that touch a lot of people in the right places, right? And you know, if that direct personal connection is there, much like what Eric was describing, if that's there, then you can get yourself to the other stages and say, hey, you know, maybe I have been chosen to support this in a financial way rather than just uh, you know in a non-financial manner. Can you describe Tree Street Youth a little bit and can we use that I as will. a use? I will. And you know, when you asked me to come on this, that I was going to juggle a little bit. So there are two things I want to say before we get to Tree Street. The first is that you have asked me for money for that particular cause. You have asked Evan yeah. and me. And the reason we gave, which is the number one reason why people donate to nonprofits, is because somebody we know and respect asked. Mm-hmm. So everyone should remember that. And that's what should make it easier 
to ask people. People give financially, I mean, the, the billions of dollars that are going through philanthropy right now. So if you don't ask, somebody else will, and they'll give. So that's the first thing I wanted to talk about. The second thing is, it's an exchange. Any good nonprofit worthy of money is giving us an opportunity to make an investment to, to, to them. And in return, Eric gets good feelings. He feels like he made a difference. So that donor organization, mutual sort of admiration society is a real thing. People do feel good when they make the world better. People do feel good when they're part of a community and they see the joy. So going to Tree Street, Derek, Tree Street Youth is a, uh, yes, is a youth center in Lewiston, Maine. Uh, they serve 99% of the kids are at or below the poverty level. 65% are from immigrant and refugee uh, families. But really what they're about is developing leaders. And it's one of the reasons, I can't say they're my favorite client, but they can, they're certainly one of my longstanding clients. And so we make the lives of kids better because they get after school tutoring, they get academic enrichment, athletics, all of that. But really what they're getting are role models so that they can become leaders and they can achieve whatever it is they want to achieve. They want to go to college, they enable them to help them to go to college. They want to go to trade school, great. They want to start their own business, be an entrepreneur, great. And so that's a lot of what Tree Street Youth does. And uh, we're, I'm very fortunate to have them as a client and uh, use them as a, a role model for other clients. Eric, what other questions do you have uh, for Ronnie? I know this inspires well, a lot of thought. Uh, so I was in a situation, this is about maybe 12 years ago or so, I was a trustee of a foundation. Um, and I had served on the board of the professional society connected to that foundation. I won't tell you who they were. I don't think I should, probably. Uh, but there was a problem with money. Uh, and the parent organization uh, the professional society wanted to stop off the flow of funds to the foundation because their research and scholarship mission was no longer core to their existential priorities. In other words, it was, it was seen as a bleed of resources. It may be good for the field, and they were developing the professional field, documenting its you know, best practices and you know, knowledge base and you know, body of knowledge, all that sort of thing. But None of that would matter if the financial viability of the professional society went away. And so I was a trustee. I had been a board member of the professional society. So I kind of knew where the bodies were buried and stuff. And I ended up over on the foundation side, a close friend of ours had actually founded that foundation maybe six or seven years prior to that. And it was just kind of getting to the point where it had a reputation. They had an academic journal that they were publishing. It was just getting its reputation under it. And um, they basically said, you guys have lost your funding. I said, hang on a second. Um, you know, what if we raise our own money? They said, really? Well, okay. How are you going to do that? I said, well, I don't know. I'm going to come up with a product that we can sell. So I ended up, um, teaming up with one of our top competitors and we sold a benchmarking assessment, a one day benchmarking service. We charged $7,500 for it. 
And I've teamed up with one of our biggest competitors because if I could do it with that guy, any two people in the world could work together, right? I was going to prove that this thing could be done by working with someone. Let's just say, mama said, can't say something nice about somebody, just keep your mouth shut. Right. I think that's a New Yorkism too. No, we Uh, say if you can't say something nice, say it in Yiddish. Right. There you go. (laughs) Anyway, long story short, we put this program together and we did one successfully. We raised 7,500 bucks. We had like 10 more lined up and the professional society said, nope, we're cutting your funding anyway. We're shutting you down. Even though we created this new cash flow stream, what was revealed out of that was there was a lot of other stuff going on. It wasn't about money. It wasn't really about money. It was about us taking attention off of what it was they were doing. So I guess how much digging, that's a really sloppy, dirty story to tell where I think, I'm guessing we're not alone in that experience. There's a whole lot of stuff like that that happens, particularly with organizations that have a lot of history. And the more history they have, and obviously smalls and mids don't necessarily have a lot of history, but talk to me about how you help navigate that. Oh, yeah, good question. It is a minefield. If we're good at our jobs, and we like to think we are, uh, we will uncover that dirty laundry, all of that, those minefields during the initial assessment work. It may come out uh, through interviews with past donors. Very often it does. It'll say, they'll say, huh, I was a donor, but let me tell you, why not anymore? And that's the beauty of hiring a consultant is they would not tell the organization that. They would not tell the ED or development director that. They will tell me that because all of a sudden, and we tell them, of course, which is true, it's held totally confidential unless unless you allow us to attribute it to you. But we don't need to. So we put in our report some anecdotal things. And if you get more than one outlier, you know you got a problem. And so that's how we deal with it. And it could be one of those red flags that does not ever go to green or not even to yellow. That's uh, it's a really interesting, uh, I guess, uh, argument for those upfront assessments. And whether you're coming at it from the for-profit or the not-for-profit world, upfront assessments when you're thinking about a, a much bigger ambitious uh, you know uh, promotion of some type of campaign like this doing your upfront assessment can unveil and reveal some of those hidden landmines if you will you know that are really important for all of our listeners coming out from any number of uh, perspectives to, to think about you know it's all about brand whether for profit or nonprofit it's all about how you portray yourself out there whether you're looking for a sale for a new client or you're looking for a donation or an investment from a new donor in the in the philanthropic world and so that brand's got to be squeaky clean it's also got to be sexy and exciting and and you know have some some stuff to it so Yes, that is one of the reasons why an assessment is so important. We don't do an assessment if somebody says, well, can you uh, help us do a monthly giving program? Or uh, we'd like to raise $50,000 for our year-end appeal. You don't need an assessment. But anytime you go into that big project proposal situation, uh, 
for a capital campaign, a million dollars and up, you know, and that's an arbitrary number, but uh, it's necessary. And what I say to clients is capital campaigns, whether you entertain them or not, will is the rising tide that lifts all boats. If you get your house in order for a potential capital campaign, you're going to be great at whatever other fundraising you want to do, regardless if you ever raise the few million dollars. Yeah. I, I started a new book uh, a few days ago. Eric knows this. Uh, it's not a new book. It's an, actually a, quite an old book uh, from 2012, Daniel Pink's uh, To Sell as Human. And I think it goes back to something you were saying. People people are scared of rejection. They're scared of, of uh, having an ask that involves money. Um, and you know what that might do to their personal brand while they're promoting some type of of uh, bigger bigger mission, right? And I think it comes down to like what you were saying when I came to you and Evan and said, "Hey, you know, I've got this fundraiser that you ought to think about. I'd love it if you thought about this." You know, I was putting my personal brand a little bit on the line with that, but at the end of the day, you trust me. You hold me in high regard, just like I hold you in high regard, and. You've brought me opportunities to to do that in reverse. But when you're when you're thinking about money, that kind of changes. And what you were talking about a few minutes ago, that kind of changes the, the landscape a little bit. Um, and if you, but if you have a cause that is big enough, there's an addressable market that's big enough. Let's be honest, you you, you can't have something that's going to be a one or two donor thing to raise a million or two million dollars. Under most conditions, that's just not not feasible. But if you have a cause that's bigger and you've done your due diligence around that, you know, um, feasibility assessment to addressable market to, you know, cause and getting your, your act together, you can withstand some degree of no, I'm not interested, uh, and still accomplish your mission. And it, it kind of brings me back to a, a saying, I still use it today. And I don't know if it was you or your husband that, that gave me this, the, the four SW principle. Was it you or, or Evan? Probably uh, both of us, but he told you it. So yeah. tell go ahead everybody. And go, you, I, don't, I want you to oh, There's, there's it. a bunch of them. So it's um, some will, some yeah. won't, so what, someone's waiting. Yes. And there's a, there's a fifth SW, stop whining. <laughs> I love that fifth SW. Yeah. I, I've yeah. not used that one before, but I might change the way I describe that to my team. I use yeah. it internally all the time. You know, the, yes. you know, you, you, and to, to the book, to sell as human, it doesn't talk about us as salespeople. It talks about us as influencers, as persuasion artists, you know, in the context of if something touches you, odds are good that it's going to touch others that are in your path or in your, in your circle, in your network. And, I believe it's almost a disservice to not share that mission with them and give them an opportunity to say yes or no. That's right. Other, it's, otherwise, it's you're, so you're, true. Otherwise, you're going to miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Wayne Gretzky. Yes. Right. Um, yes, that's so true, Derek. Um, first of all, no means no, not now. You should always feel that whether you're selling in the for-profit world or in the nonprofit world, as you so aptly said, you're giving people an opportunity. This is not money for Derek and Eric. This is money for True Street Youth. This is money for those kids that wouldn't have access ordinarily. So if you say no to me, 
you haven't said no to me. You said, no, you know what? I have other priorities and this one is not working for me right now. Okay, great. Nothing lost, nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? And that's how we try to get board members over the fear of rejection is they're not rejecting you ever, 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 unless you did it in the wrong way. And that's where our training comes in on how to make a respectable ask. Let's switch gears uh, to some of your entrepreneurial ventures, you know, uh, outside of this current current uh, model that you've uh, had in place for 15 years. What are some of the things you've taken, Ronnie, away from the business world and, you know, various, um, you know, uh, ventures that you've had out there that you think our listeners, you know, if there were five things you could tell your 20-year-old self or 25-year-old self that you've learned over the years, what might that be? for people kind of navigating professional career development to finding their place in the world to, you know, other things that drive them? I think the first thing, and I am sure many of the people you have on this podcast have talked about it, is goal setting. And I don't think it's overrated. I think that most people think that they set goals. The best thing I learned when I was in the nutritional sales business was by a gentleman who I still think is is a mentor to me. And he said, here's what I want you to do in setting goals. I want you to write down your goal on an index card. And I want you to then write down what you're going to do to achieve that goal on the next index card. And on the third index card, I want you to write down, what is it going to feel like? What is it going to look like when you achieve your goals? So do you have a place on the water with an acre of land? Are you riding your tractor daily? Are you taking walks with your spouse? Visualize that. And he said, then read those three index cards every morning in a place where you can concentrate on them and then go to work. So that has worked for me. I will say it has worked for my son, who, uh, my older son, Chad, who, when he wanted to place in the uh, Pinellas County Aquatic Swim Championships, he had to be the top 16 of the county. I said, well, what do you want to swim? He said, I want to swim the butterfly. I said, write that down on an index card. Write down how you're going to get there. Well, mama, I'm going to go to practice twice a day. Write it down. I said, and then what is it going to feel like when you get that trophy? Oh, man. You know, and he went on and he had these taped over his bed. And by gosh, he reached his goal. And he used to, people would ask him in interviews, tell me something about growing up that helped you get to where you are. And he sheepishly said, my mom. <laughs> goal setting. I, that's a big takeaway for me. I love that. And actually, I'll use a, an example. About a year ago, September of last year, we started an internal revisioning process, we called it, where we were really midst of the pandemic and sort of trying to figure out what Aurora does next. It's um, when the podcast really got its start, too, or at least its early start. We decided we would do this, you know, right in that fall of 2020 time, time frame. Um, 
I declared at that point that we have a new product called SRC, Stakeholder Reconnaissance Communities. And five years from now, I would like us to be launching one per day. Uh, and of course, that's a unbelievable, unreasonable, completely unimaginable goal uh, in September of 2020 when that goal was put on the table. But I will tell you that not a day goes by when I don't look and during meetings and say, if we do it that way, we'll never be able to launch an SRC every day. If we set the system up now, and here we are a year into that five-year arc, we'll never be able to launch one a day because it's going to take five days just to do that one little subsystem. No, not good enough. We, we need to figure out a way to have that happen before it even gets to our desk so that instead of us taking five days to hold the hand of a client who's trying to set up a stakeholder reconnaissance community, we build that criteria into their application process because we can never launch one a day if that takes five days by itself. So to your point of goal setting, man, it's a daily thing. That goal, which is now four years away, that's on my mind in every meeting. Yeah, that's that's a good example. And then the sort of the corollary to that is metrics. So in certainly in the for-profit arena, when I was building businesses, I would say I was I was not adept at metrics. Now with any nonprofit uh, that we consult to that we're in the middle of a campaign, we've got a dashboard. And I am allergic to Excel spreadsheets, but I love bar graphs with color. So it's always branded with the colors of the nonprofit. And if we know that we need to raise 10 gifts of $10,000, I see every week how many gifts of $10,000 we've raised and the total and then, you know, so on and so on. So metrics, I would say, uh, is a huge, it's been a great learning curve for me. I used to pretty much do it like, okay, we'll just get there. But now, now I use metrics quite a bit. So goals, metrics, what are the other big components, uh, toward like, uh, living living to the to the dream you know of uh, what you're describing i i think the third one and it's again a word that people use all the time but discipline you know it takes discipline on a beautiful day like this to be sitting at your desk and um derek i think you recall todd smith discipline is the doing the things that you don't want to do and he used to say, doing the things, even though you don't want to do it, something like that. And discipline is paying yourself first. So if you're a development director at a nonprofit, or you're at a sales manager for a company, you got to make calls first. You got to bring the dollars in before you ever train your sales force, before you ever as a development director, look to your communications manager and say, well, how are we gonna get this newsletter out? You have to pay yourself first. And that means in the money world, bringing in money and doing the activities that it takes to bring in that money. So I would say without going into too many pauses, goals, metrics, discipline. Yeah. Well, as we, uh, seek to wrap up this awesome conversation. You know, we always like to uh, kind of ask the question, Ronnie, where do our listeners who want to connect with you after the podcast is done, 
how do they do that? How do they communicate with you? Where do they find you? Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, you know, those types yeah, of uh, venues. Very simple. So LinkedIn for sure, personal Ronnie Weston. Uh, our website is bullmoosegroup.com. Uh, my email address is Ronnie at bullmoosegroup.com. And by the way, Bull Moose Group is to the testament of Teddy Roosevelt uh, and what he has stood for and the causes that he believed in. And when he was uh, running, um, he uh, was somebody tried to assassinate him and uh, he survived that. And he said, you can't kill a bull moose and basically you know so that's where bull moose comes from but uh i'd love for people to get in touch even if it's just to say hey we really enjoyed that that's awesome well let me just thank you ronnie and you know derek you've got a really cool friend here and now i feel like i have one too uh so such a pleasure to talk with you today ronnie and uh you know where to find us but i wish this was coming out tomorrow and not next year uh so maybe we'll have you back Thank you so much, guys, and thank you again for the opportunity. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, the uh, the release date on this podcast is not for a little while, and I pat myself a little bit on the back for having a long kind of weed cycle here, right? So this is episode, we said it in the early part, uh, episode 28. It's coming out March 1st of 2022. That happens to coincide with my 19th anniversary here at uh, Aurora, and I think your son may have a birthday right around there. My son, Jake, right, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, what's cool about this world is if you allow others to, um, you know, come into your orbit and you open up a little bit, you can make great friends like what Ronnie Weston and her dear husband, Evan, have uh, become to me. Um, more than just friends, uh, kind of extended family members, mentors, and so on. So, Ronnie, for that, thank you very much for, for coming on Running Into the Fog. I think what you've done is uh, you certainly re-inspired me to kind of think more broadly about my role here at, at our firm, but my role in the community. You know, the, I'm not going to, uh, I want you to repeat the, the pronunciation of uh, to repair the world. What's the? Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam. T-I-K-U-N-O-L-A-M. Okay. So to repair the world, this world you know, depending on which, uh, where you live, kind of what, what, uh, what you have, there's always a way to give back and to give back in a way that positively impacts uh, this world's ability to repair both physically and uh, beyond those, those parameters. So uh, thanks for being an inspiration to me. Um, I, I'm glad I could introduce you to my brother, even though you guys were technically in the same place uh, what, at our wedding. Like in One time. That was it. One yep. time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we'll have you on for another edition of Running Into the Fog someday down the road here. Kind of an update on your story and how you continue to influence the uh, nonprofit uh, you know, world out there and help them live to their purpose. Thank you. Thank you guys very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, everybody. Hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Running into the fog. Bye for now.